welcome to series two of Depollution from Salvage Wire. In this podcast, we interview interesting and inspiring leaders to discuss issues that are facing the vehicle salvage and vehicle recycling industries, along with other leaders who can challenge and inspire the whole industry. In this episode, we welcome Wukash Kosh of LC Media. Wukash is a public speaker, MC and convention host and has been working with the Polish auto recyclers for a number of years. He brings his leadership skills to our industry and in this episode you will hear his unique insights into public speaking, leadership, creative thinking and storytelling. This discussion is a must for all industry leaders and managers, so let's get straight into it. Let's start, and, and Rukash, uh, thank you so much for being part of the Depollution podcast. Thank you for taking the time. Just to introduce yourself, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your career, uh, who you've worked for, and, and your current role? Andy, first of all, thank you for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you in this formula. Where, where do you start with a question like that? I was born, <laughs> seriously, you don't do that. But professionally, it's been quite a diverse ride for me. I study at the Jagiellonian University in Krakow. English Philology Institute is what it's known as, and essentially what it means you study literature, history, psychology, philosophy, um, theater, film, all these things to give you a broad perspective. And my final thesis, interestingly enough, was about Richard III and two film adaptations of Shakespeare's play, the most notorious character. <laughs> in all of Shakespeare's work. So this is what I started with and straight after university I started my postgraduate studies which was UNESCO chair for translation and intercultural communication and during my postgraduate studies I thought mm, as I was also trying to make some money while studying teaching business English at two private schools a private college and a private school and I thought when would be the best time to find the job that would take me on a somewhat longer journey and I thought well let's try and draft you know the very first CV as you normally do while still at university send it out uh, and I the company I sent it to first was a steel making company uh, ironically enough and my friends would ask me why would you even send a CV to a steel making company with your Shakespeare background and I said well you know after some time I would develop a very specific answer to that question every time I heard it I would say that you know at university Shakespeare was dead no matter how much you love the literature part of it but in the corporate world he's very much alive so that would be my one-line response to people asking me after six years and four different roles in the in the corporate sector of hyper intense work. It was also a very interesting period for the steel industry because it was just before the biggest hostile takeover or merger of the two biggest steel players on international markets. And from the start, I was working very close to the CEO of the company, first as executive assistant, then, then I was uh, chief corporate social responsibility. Uh, and then I became director of communications and company spokesperson, editor in chief of the company bulletin. And I left the company in 2010, uh, went back to Krakow because I, all those years I really missed Krakow. I mean, one of the outposts of the company was also in Krakow, but the life, the corporate life was so intense. There was so much traveling and so much working late hours and, you know, business dinners. 
I traveled all over the world from Brazil, Canada, all across Europe, all those business trips, some of it CSR, some of it other business related things, also quite frequently in London and, and Luxembourg when the company where the company was headquartered. So it was a hyper intense life and I'm sure you can sort of visualize that. <laughs> and in 2010, uh, I moved back to Krakow. Uh, you know, when you're when you're relatively young, straight after university, you think, okay, I'm going to give a corporate job a try to see where it takes you. And then a year later, when you get promoted, you ask yourself this question again, am I staying for another year or am I trying something that is closer to your soul? And another year passes and you fly on those trips and you think to yourself, is this really ultimately the kind of life you want to have? And this is, is, this, is this the psychological, more importantly, psychological ecosystem, uh, the environment of people who have the kinds of aspirations and ambitions in life that you want to have? I think it's extremely important to find that. And I became really conscious about looking for that. Eventually, in 2010, I went back to Krakow, um, sent, sent my CV to a private university I wanted to work for. I went to a meeting, which was packed full of people, which was a bit of a surprise. One of the people interviewing me was later the justice minister in Poland, funnily enough. And I got the job. And the most important question they asked me during the interview, I still remember, was, was we are probably not going to be able to pay you as much as you're used to getting from, from a big corporate <laughs> environment. And I, I simply responded, you know, we all have chapters in life. In this chapter of mine, I'm not about money, or I'm not after money. If like I'm, I'm after something else. I wanted to work with students. I wanted to calm my life down. I wanted to get more clarity about what I would be doing next. So that was a very important stage. Again, I thought it would be one year. After two years, I had more clarity about the business I wanted to set up. But it took me another two years to give up the job at the private university. So eventually it was four years at a private university, after which I already had a website ready with all the prospective services my company would be delivering. So here I am, five Ooh. years after that moment, Andy. Yeah. Okay, and, and, and so tell me about your company, about LC Media and, and, and what it does. It's a small company to begin with, mm, deliberately so. I want it to be small. I'm keeping it small quite deliberately because I, I don't want it to be yet another incarnation of a corporate lifestyle. So I don't want a, an elaborate structure, but despite being small, it's quite a diverse portfolio of services. It's essentially, it's a consultancy if you were to categorize it, uh, focused on things like creative strategy development, storytelling and communication strategies for different clients, all the way from corporate, institutional. There's a lot of city marketing involved. Essentially, I love doing everything that it, it, it involves creative thinking, creative design, coming up with fresh ideas. And that's sometimes reflected uh, in different products and services. Like sometimes it's a short film for a client Sometimes it's running the social media for the client, for an institution. Sometimes it's organizing a comprehensive training around specific issues and challenges a company or an institution is facing, or a city for that matter. Mm -hmm. So I especially, love, uh, I especially love doing city marketing and city sto storytelling. Krakow is a lovely place to, to work on that. Not because it's so great at it, it's doing quite well, I would say, 
but creatively it, it has its own fascinating challenges and this has been my territory for the past three years at least mm. working closely with the city authorities amazing and obviously i mean you know the global pandemics had a significant impact on you know the business that you do and the and the industry that you're part of um so what have you done differently this year to survive and provide provide services to to your clients and your customers that's a very good question i think We've all heard this question, but it remains to be a very important question this year because a lot has changed. I remember back in March, it was like more or less 10th of March, 12th of March, something like that. I was at a historical cities conference. That's the title of the conference, a fascinating international conference, which was scheduled to be a two-day event. But then they introduced restrictions and measures during a prime minister press conference, which eventually uh, resulted in the conference organizer coming on the stage during the first day and saying, I'm sorry, but we can't have the second day of this conference. And on that day, things started disappearing from my calendar. So despite doing training, consultancy, social media, all these things, the diversity is quite deliberate. Uh, one of the reasons is risk management, of course. Sometimes you do this, sometimes you do that. Some people like repetitive patterns, some people like diversity, I'm the latter. So things started disappearing from my calendar and things started disappearing from everyone's calendar. And like literally the whole quarter ahead disappeared mm. over a period of less than a week, which looked quite scary at first. But then something happened, which was really remarkable because for years I thought, I love emceeing conferences, facilitating debates. Uh, this is something I truly love doing and I, I think because of my interest in public speaking and also academic background and interests reading and analyzing speeches for over a decade uh, i've tried to think what would be the best option uh, on a market like in a market like poland if you want to be a host and mc of of conferences mostly international and i thought okay what kind of people do this job and it was clear just like everywhere else it's actors celebrities uh, breakfast tv hosts and then I analyzed different aspects of doing this job by those people. I thought they gladly do conferences which are relatively easiest to do. Uh, in other words, conferences for which you can prepare in the car for, just riding to the conference or driving to the conference. Yeah. And I thought I should rather like to specialize in something much more demanding um, where I would be able to create my own niche. And I thought, first of all, I want international conferences Secondly, I want conferences where I can spend more, where I can dedicate much more time to the client. I can do my own research. I can understand a much broader horizon of issues. And having the privilege of being an outsider, you, you actually contribute fresh insights to the, to the debate. And this is where I started specializing. And in March and April 2020, these things became especially relevant because all of a sudden, if you were a, a conference organizer, in Paris and you needed a good MC. In the past, you would think grab someone nearby because that will eliminate all sorts of logistics costs, hotels, flights, etc. Uh, if you didn't have a huge budget for, for your conference host and or no, no specific reason for a conference host of any particular type. But now with hybrid and online conferences, these logistics and cost factors are no longer there. So as a result, since March, I've, I've facilitated and hosted roughly 60 international conferences for clients in Spain, Portugal, France, uh, 
I've not I've not done anything for the UK, but th that's obvious. You don't have a shortage of people speaking English in the UK. Uh, but I've done conferences, multiple conferences for most countries in the EU, and the conference we have together uh, is one of the most fascinating and uh, non-standard ones, I would say. So that's that's more or less the picture. Now it's been the busiest year of all uh, in the last five years of the company. Amazing, amazing. And do you think that you know, the pandemic will change how conferences um, are, are delivered uh, in the future, even after we've sort of, you know, everybody's got the vaccine and everybody's safe? Do you think this is going to have a significant change in how conferences are, are facilitated in the future? It's really hard to say for sure unless you really, unless you love wishful thinking, but it's really hard to say for sure at this stage for various reasons. I, one of the things I do for clients is also audit conferences. Mm -hmm. But ironically enough, it's not even a, an established service category in Poland, because most people think that if you have a conference provider in the sense that you have an organizer, like an event agency or a company and the, the organization or a company that pays for the conference, all the knowledge that is needed to not only do it well, but also improve it continuously is between those two parties, which is wrong, plainly wrong. Just like with everything else, if you have an outsider, an auditor, someone who has been to, participated in, in, in work on various conferences, you, you, you get extra benefits. But somehow, this market is not even there. Just like speaker coaching at conferences. Yeah. To give you an example, uh, for a conference organizer, from a purely diplomatic perspective, it's not easy to approach a keynote speaker and say, listen, I've watched you on YouTube 20 times and you're so boring, but it's not for me to tell you that. <laughs> and there are just so many different ways we could improve your stage presence. And you've been repeating the same messages for the past decade. So why don't you have a more critical, self-introspective approach <laughs> to your work? <laughs> but back to your question, Andy. Uh, the reason why it's difficult to say that, because you know, we we tend to think, we tend to think that this is a long-term situation, and even if the whole of 2021 is going to be pretty much similar, and we're going to be on the cautious side of building large audiences during events, if in 2023 it starts all over again, we'll probably think we've been missing conferences and interactions and networking and the team spirit and the herd atmosphere so much that we will be keen to come back. But my answer to your question would be, it really should change. Mm. Because we've seen lots and lots of conferences talking about circular economy, sustainable, sustainable approach to different aspects of also organizing events. But when you look at it, Krakow is described as a host city. 8,000 events have been hosted last year in this city alone. We are talking about conferences, business gatherings, huge international co congresses, festivals. The city has, I'm, I'm not sure about the total, but I, I think all the city's festivals, both international and local, account for roughly 26, seven days of festivals in a year. So, so that gives you a perspective. But there is a lot of, Maybe hypocrisy is too strong a word, but if you have a conference for two, three thousand people for two, three days with multiple thematic streams, and then to bring, say, 10% of those people from abroad 
Japan, Australia, wherever your speakers are. The carbon footprint of having a, a physical space conference is huge and nobody really cares. Even conferences that deal with environment don't talk about the carbon footprint of those very conferences. So it's a very complex question. That's why I'm taking a while to answer it. But one of the things should be, I think the offline conferences in the real world should be more focused on content quality and content discipline mm -hmm. and content improvement. I mean, we all know that conferences are largely about the experience, networking, the, the, the spirit, if you like, the ambience of it. And that's why that's one of the reasons why things should also change mm. for the better. Mm. So let's hope that COVID pushes it in Excellent. that direction. Excellent. And you mentioned um, one piece of work that you do there. You mentioned about actually public speaking. Uh, and, yes. and I know you do sort of help and, and work and train people in public speaking. And um, I was recording a, a, an episode of the podcast a couple of days ago. And um, the contributor, you know, I asked him what advice he would give to, to young and aspiring leaders who want to grow and, and develop in the industry. Uh, and he said, you know, he said, become or, or be prepared to learn how to speak, particularly at conferences and ask questions. Uh, and, and I thought that was very, very, very profound, um, you know, because it, but by that he's, he's talking about public speaking, he's talking about asking questions and asking the right questions. And that's something that you do. So what does the training, what does your public speaking training involve and how does, how does this benefit people? It's a brutal process to start with. <laughs> It's a cruel process. <laughs> it's not that I'm trying to put you off, but it is, well, let's focus on the goal or the goals of it. Mm. It's about putting you essentially on the right track to self-improvement, to continuous self-improvement. If that sounds a little too abstract, I would say it's about significantly sharpening your observation skills, especially self-observation skills and habits you have. Essentially, a great majority of people don't know how to speak in public scenarios. And that is further compounded by the extra effects that they find hard to anticipate. So if you are a professional and you've been a professional in your field for over a decade, and it's your first big conference and you're supposed to stand in the spotlight for the first time and there's an audience of 1000 people waiting to listen to your every word for most people is it's incredibly shocking to experience the physiology part of it let alone what it does to the words you start uttering once you start uttering words <laughs> so in other words you've got a whole lot of different physiological reactions under this kind of pressure so that's part of the training process, preparing you for that better. But more importantly, realizing that in terms of content discipline, structure, creativity, there is just so much work that the great majority of people should consider. It, it might just be the most important training ever, mm. not only in your professional life, but in your private life as well, mm. because I think it, it makes you much better at prioritizing communication essentially wow that is that is amazing i mean 
you know, one of the reasons I do this uh, podcast is you know, to help people in the industry. Um, but the other side benefit that I get is I get free free of charge consultation every time I talk to somebody <laughs> like yourself. Yeah, and I'm not that I'm you in, need any, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean, I'm taking I'm taking so many notes here. It's just 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 amazing. Yeah, and I get the opportunity to listen yes, to it a few times before before it goes live. So, uh, just just to give you one more hint on that, um, because as I said, I I genuinely think it's important and something I do mostly because I used to be shy myself, mm. very shy in fact. Mm. So it's been a take the bull by the horns kind of mm. a process for me. I wasn't born with that. I wasn't mm. born with stage skills. Mm. And that when, when you start from that position, your observation skills sharpen a little bit faster, maybe. And when you turn it into an analytical process and you, you become more deliberate about the learning process, then, then it's easier. What it should never be about is putting any kind of corset on anyone mm. and tightening it. Mm. And by that, I mean, don't teach people fixed gestures, like a steeple, for instance. Yeah. When I see someone doing a steeple, I just, the other day, I, I actually only yesterday, I had an eight hour training session with a CEO of a company, a very experienced person when it comes to stage performances, but nevertheless, self-critical enough to recognize the need for such training, which I'm always grateful for, I should say, because it's not an easy thing. We are hampered by our own egos very often. We think we're good enough. And it's especially comforting or optimistic when I see someone who just looks great, is young, speaks a number of languages, runs a huge multinational company, and nevertheless comes to the conclusion that they would benefit from something like public speaking training. It does take someone really humble, not pretend humble or pretend modest, but truly humble to come to that conclusion. And this is one of the reasons that I really love doing it, because part of the process of the eight hour process, a lot of recording, rehearsing, practicing, is that you tell someone things that they haven't heard most likely from their closest of friends. I could give you an example which would be striking, but <laughs> no need for that, I suppose. <laughs> Brilliant. That is amazing. That is incredible, incredible advice. And, and thank you for that. It's so good. You also complete a lot of work for, for your home city, for Krakow. Um, so why, why, what do you do for them and why is it so important to you to do this? Whether it's important, uh, that's probably not for me to judge, but I certainly hope that my client, in this case, the city of Krakow, is satisfied with the work I do. One of the projects I've been doing for quite some time now, it's called Krakow Heritage which is essentially, it's a website, but it also has social media channels, especially on Facebook, called Krakow Heritage, spelled with K-double-K, K-R-A-K-O-W. And the idea, the broader idea behind this project is to better understand the city's international storytelling. After all, Krakow is one of the first two locations worldwide to be ever inscribed on the UNESCO World Heritage List back in 1978. Right. So it's quite a story. So it's 20, 42 years, isn't it? Mm. And the city has had its lessons in the past. You remember, you, you would have heard the story of Nova Huta, which was deliberately added as a socialist project, which is like a city within a city, but with an altogether different 
plan behind it. As a city, Krakow is absolutely fascinating from my perspective. It's, it's very popular among tourists. It's 13 million people come to Krakow every year, not in 2020, but, but generally it's like 12, 13, 15 times the number of people living in the city coming to Krakow. The city is also number one in Europe for IT and business services along with Dublin. Uh, almost 100,000 people work in Krakow in this sector alone, which is quite astonishing because this sector has grown for, from roughly 20,000 people in 2011 to 100,000 people in 10 years, which, which by any standards is quite astonishing. But at the same time, with this kind of growth and with this kind of dynamics and with this kind of touristification and commercialization and gentrification, as these things are called, uh, new challenges arise. And this is where my interests and my passions come in. So I talk to different city representatives at different levels and I participate in the process of understanding those processes better and perhaps doing whatever we can do to ensure that the work we're doing is more sustainable, more thought through, wiser simply, not to sell the city to, you know, just unrestricted commercialization because it's really very important for a city like Krakow to be careful along those lines. Amazing, <clears throat> amazing. And having been to Krakow myself and, and I can attest to the beauty of the city, it is a stunning, stunning place to visit. And, uh, uh, and what I personally love most about this city, Andy, is that it's both big enough and extremely intimate at the same time, mm -hmm. which is rare because you don't come across that many historical cities where you don't need to take a, you know, an underground to go somewhere sure. or a it's not a long bus ride. So in that sense, it's small and intimate. It's mm -hmm. everything seems to be within walking distance. Yeah. But it's big enough to make you feel that you're in a city city, a proper city, with all the infrastructure that's associated with a big city. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's absolutely. So, so anybody listening to this podcast, if you, uh, you know, once a few days away, once, once um, you know, lockdown has, has lifted, uh, I would strongly, strongly recommend Krakow. Beautiful, beautiful city. You've, you've, you've held a number of different positions across your working life, and you've obviously not sat back and rested on your successes. So what drives you to continuously move forward to grow your knowledge, your skills and your influence? It's very difficult to answer this question without saying something that's along the lines of let's make the world a better place kind of <laughs> answer. But I the reason why I work in the meetings industry is that I simply love interacting with people, interacting with different industries, interacting with people who have very, very different backgrounds and come from very different walks of life. You can always learn a lot. And it exposes you, whether you like it or not, whether it's part of a conscious process or not, it, it does make you humble because you just realize things can be much more fragile at the same time. Even, you know, and with any kind of success, your ego tends to grow, right? So I suppose that would be the most important aspects of why I do what I do and why there is so much diversity in that role. But what, what matters for me most perhaps is independence. Uh, not in the fin financial sense, this of course is always important, but 
in the sense that I, I genuinely believe that life is too short for us to be doing things which are accidental or are an outcome of some kind of series of random processes. For instance, if you study at a university and your decision to study at that particular university to study a specific discipline was more or less an accident because you were still too young to know that that would really be what you're after. But after some time, you get more clarity. And the question is, what do you do? If, if, if a series of accidents has pushed you to work for a bank or for a steelmaking company, mm -hmm. for that matter, then there comes a moment in life when it just needs to be a deliberate choice, whether you continue to the retirement uh, with the outcomes of what used to be uh, a series of accidents or whether you're true to your values, you're true to your words. I mean, the environment I worked for in the steel sector was, I learned a lot there, but in purely psychological sense, it was as Machiavellian as it gets. Mm. I mean, the most corporate of corporate types, hugely intercultural. And in that sense, it was very, very interesting. And it taught me a lot. And it taught me the things that I would probably never be able to learn anywhere else. I mean, not even in other companies. So it was a very unique company also interculturally, mm. hugely inter intercultural and a lot of traveling involved. But at the same time, if you go back to the very core part of your identity, this wasn't my world yeah. uh, by a large margin. So, you know. Yeah. And can you point to any influences during your, your working life, any people or, or, or books or something that you've read that's influenced you in, in your working life that you would uh, point as being significant for you? That's surprisingly, it's not an easy question for me to answer because what would be rather sad is that I've often learned, um, there are two ways to learn from other people. Sometimes it's, you feel someone is so great and so inspiring, you just feel like following that person in one way or another, learning from them. And the, the other way is watching someone closely, uh, someone who is impressive on, in various areas, but not necessarily, not necessarily in a holistic sense. So for instance, you would get someone who's really professional in a specific discipline, but at the same time as a human being, uh, there's something important missing. So in that sense, the learning process becomes just picking and choosing the best parts. And sometimes it's by contrast. I mean, we, if you read Isaacson, uh, the biography of Jobs, for instance, mm -hmm you would instantly learn. I mean, the, there are a couple of fascinating pieces in that book, which even though the book itself is, maybe I shouldn't say it, I didn't find the book as a whole that interesting, maybe because I knew a lot about jobs before I started reading the book. But one of the fascinating things, um, aspects of this book is the psychology of it. And on the one hand, you've got uh, possibly the number one guru of the tech world of the past few decades easily mm. someone who pioneered not only technologies and design thinking but also the way other ceos would be conducting their day-to-day -day business and presenting products and service uh, presentations during their product and service launch uh, presentations but at the same time when you 
get deeper into the person, uh, the, the chemistry, the quality of life in a specific ecosystem, then it becomes more tricky. So to give you a short answer to, to the question you asked, sadly, I've been reading too many textbooks and articles and, and very focused sort of bulletins, like things about city marketing, things about psychology, sociology, but much fewer, much fewer books in the sense of prose just for pleasure. So I think this is one of my New Year resolutions to come back to good prose. I love history books, uh, especially contemporary history, yeah. but this is something I definitely need to come back to. I mean, after all, 60 conferences in the year of the biggest pandemic kept me busy. <laughs> I, can imagine. I can imagine. And is there any advice you can give to young and aspiring leaders who want to grow and develop, develop their leadership skills? Or in other words, what advice would the current Rukesh give to the 22-year-old Rukesh? And I thought he would give me an easy question to close. <laughs> and... <laughs> no, no, you, no, 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 there's, an e there's easy questions to follow. <laughs> I think the important thing is that we really, that we really um, understand that there is a margin of error in our judgments and that there are certain things we have every right not to understand at a certain age in our life. But what matters is that once we do understand things, we should actually act on, the, uh, on these things and we should have the courage and the method and the knowledge to act on the conclusions we eventually arrive at. In the sense that the longer you live in a role that is not yours to live in, in the psychological sense, that the more difficult it is to part ways with that life because you get you you've achieved a lot you've been promoted a couple of times you've you've got a really nice salary you know how to do things the reality becomes predictable for you which is also nice because we want predictability some of us most of us maybe but the thing is perhaps the single most important well we are talking at a very specific period in time in a very specific year so I suppose the important thing is that we really never know. Just, I don't want it to sound too serious, but we really do not know how much time we have for various reasons. So I suppose it's only fair that we should do our best to at least live a life that is truly ours. It's really as simple as that. Yeah, fantastic. That's amazing. That's amazing. Now, you, know, you, you are speaking very, very eloquently in, in English. Uh, which is not your first language. You know, obviously, your first language is Polish. Just, just out of interest, how many lang how many languages do you speak? I also speak German, but not that fluently. But I can speak German and a bit of Russian, and that's all. <laughs> right. Okay, but it puts me to shame because I speak English, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, final question, and this is one that we ask all of our guests on the podcast. Um, what was your first car? And do you have any special memories of that car? I'm going to surprise you now. When I was a very, very, very small kid, I remember vividly, nevertheless, that my father used to have a, a something like a brand new light blue Moskvich, which was a Soviet car, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which yeah. I think my grandfather brought from, from Italy. Mm -hmm. 
when he worked in Italy in a gold mine, in fact, something like that. There's a family story like that. So he brought a brand new mosque pitch. And then at the beginning of the 90s, we had a Hyundai or Hyundai pony, and we had it for a very long time. Mm -hmm. So that would be the first two. Mm -hmm. Wow. Amazing. And, you know, we've had so many good stories but that's the first time we've had a moscovich on on, <laughs> I'm, on the I'm story sure. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing Lucas, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us uh, and just to inspire us in our in our journey of leadership of public speaking storytelling strategy creative thinking and and so much more thank you very much for taking it's been time. an absolute pleasure andy thank you for inviting me. thank you that was amazing a big big thank you to wukash for his time and his knowledge you'll find details on how to contact lc media in the notes for this episode please don't forget to take the time to like and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and give us a rating Thank you and we'll see you on the next podcast.